The Toronto Society for Psychical Research, or the TSPR, was established in the early 1970s in order to examine psychic and extrasensory perception. In 1972, Dr. George Owen, a university lecturer, geneticist, and mathematician associated with the society, wanted to determine if ghosts were just creations of the human mind. He assembled a group of eight participants, who were all members of the TSPR, but all whom denied having psychic powers. Included in the group was his wife, as well as the former chairperson of the Canadian chapter of Mensa. Dr. Owen tasked the group with creating a fictional persona whose ghost they could then attempt to conjure during weekly sessions. The group created a ghost named Philip Islesford, who was an English nobleman in the 1600s. He was Catholic and married to a woman named Dorothea, who was cold and distant. Philip met a gypsy woman named Margot, with whom he immediately fell in love. The two had had an affair, and when Dorothea discovered this, she accused Margot of witchcraft. Margot was subsequently burned alive, and a heartbroken and guilt-ridden Philip went off to war where he also perished. With the details of Philip's life complete, one member of the group drew a picture of him so that they would have a face to put with the persona. Once the details were together, the group commenced with weekly seances where they would talk about and meditate on Philip. Initially, the sessions were in well-lit, nondescript rooms. However, after a year with no result, the group re-evaluated their methods and decided to make the sessions resemble more formal seances, where they sat around a round table, dimmed the lights, and surrounded themselves with objects that were reminiscent of those that Philip would have found familiar in the mid-1600s. Once the changes were made, inexplicable phenomena started to occur. A rapping on the table started, which was believed to be the first communication from Philip. They asked Philip to respond to questions by rapping once for yes and twice for no, and he began responding in kind. The table began moving on its own accord, sliding across the floor and balancing on one leg. Philip controlled the lights, dimming and brightening them. He would send a cold breeze across the table and a mist would form. While Philip responded to their questions, he never provided information the group didn't already know. One seance was conducted in front of 50 spectators and also recorded the videos of which can still be found on YouTube. During the session, Philip levitated the table, responded to questions with rapping noises, and turned the lights on and off. Although all of the participants and observers believed Philip was communicating with them, and some of the participants reported hearing whispering, no voice was ever recorded. After the success of the Philip experiment, another experiment was conducting using a different group of participants. This time, the spirit they created was named Lilith, and just as in the Philip experiment, Lilith also communicated with participants using the same methods. Additional experiments were subsequently conducted by the TSPR, and each time, these strange phenomena occurred. A similar experiment was conducted in Sydney, Australia, with the same results. Several different explanations have been made about the results of these experiments. One is that the phenomena was created by the participants, they were actually able to move the objects using telekinesis because they collectively focused as a group. Many argued this suggested spirits did not exist and were rather created by human intention. Others suggested there were supernatural explanations for the occurrences, stating other spirits or demons were simply posing as the fictional ghosts and that they were interacting with the physical world and tricking the participants. Others suggested that the whole experiment was an elaborate and well-executed hoax. This episode is about the Philip experiment.
Hello, and welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morelos. So, David, hmm. I came across the Philip experiment when I was doing research for our Amityville episode. And when I read about it, I thought it would be a perfect topic for our podcast. I've wanted to talk about parapsychology for a while. So a case about telekinesis was just what I was looking for. Yeah, it was interesting. I'd never heard of this until you had brought it up. Yeah, I wasn't familiar with it either. And it kind of seems like something that you and I would know about. So it was kind of exciting to actually find, you know, a case that like this that we had never heard of. Yeah, I agree. So to start out, I just wanted to talk about how common the belief in psychic abilities is. A U.S. Gallup survey conducted in 2005 found that more than a quarter of people believed that psychic abilities are a possibility. And with so many Americans holding this belief, it's no surprise that there have been many attempts to research psychic abilities. One of the more well-known institutions for such research is the Rhine Research Center in Durham, North Carolina. This center began in 1928 when psychologist William McDougall went to Duke University to run the psychology department. A little history on McDougall. He had been the president of the British Society for Psychical Research and later was a professor at Harvard University. When he arrived at Duke, he asked a friend of his, biologist Joseph Banks Rhine, to join him. And in 1929, Rhine came to Duke and began doing research on postmortem survival and psychic phenomenon using students as his test subjects. So, David, I remember in undergrad, as a psychology major, we had to participate in research studies. Mm -hmm. And I just think, like, how cool would that have been to participate in some of Ryan's research back in the day? Yeah, that would have been really interesting. I had to give a little shout out to Duke University because, you know, when I first found out that they actually engaged in this kind of research, I was pretty impressed. I used to actually be a big Duke Blue Devils fan back in high school when I was all about basketball and stuff. But so when I found out that they actually did this kind of research there, I thought it was pretty fascinating. Well, and I think that um, parapsychology was an interest of researchers around that time and that there were actually several universities who were looking at this. And there's even a university that's currently doing some research that I'm going to talk about in a minute. So while Ryan was doing this research with his students, His initial experiments involved card-guessing experiments, and the results were favorable. They suggested that clairvoyance was real and measurable. When others learned of his research, his popularity soared, and he started the Parapsychology Laboratory at Duke. His program also began to publish the Journal of Parapsychology, which is still in print today. They expanded their research to include other types of psychic abilities, including psychokinesis, or PK as it's sometimes called. In 1950, the Ryan Research Center separated from the psychology department, but it was still affiliated with Duke University until 1965 when Ryan decided to make the institute separate from the university, renaming it the Institute for Parapsychology. Ryan died in 1980, and in 1995, the institute was renamed the Ryan Research Center, which is what it's called now. So the Ryan Research Center still operates today, and if you believe that you have psychic abilities, you can actually contact them, and they may potentially study you if you can pass their initial tests. That is so cool. Yeah, right? 
Ryan continues to publish the Journal of Parapsychology and conduct their own research studies. One of the areas they continue to examine is that of telekinesis, or psychokinesis as it can also be called. So telekinesis actually refers to the moving of stationary objects, such as the table in the Philip experiment, while psychokinesis, or PK, is a broader term that refers to the mind's ability to influence things outside of itself in a non-physical manner. So it could be physically moving something, like in telekinesis, or it could just be changing something, such as influencing coin flips or dice rolls. Much of the research done on PK has actually focused on more small-scale changes or influence called micro-psychokinesis, and the current research being done at Rhine is looking at participants' ability to move an eggly wheel, which is described on their website as a pinwheel device. Hmm. Ryan's website says that they believe there is evidence certain people have PK ability. However, they acknowledge that others are skeptical, and Ryan remains open to non-psychic explanations. Ryan's website does state that they have found an individual who has consistently demonstrated micro-PK abilities. They claim this person can affect random number generators and other electronic devices on demand. They're still running controlled experiments with this person, but they sound hopeful that there's something significant going on. So was there was there any other information available about this person, or is that something they're keeping sort of private? Yeah, know? they're keeping it private from what I could tell from their website, but it sounds like they'll be publishing the research that they're continuing to do with this individual. So, you know, that's, that's pretty interesting. Well, you remember the psychic that uh, Montel Williams, you remember Montel, the, the television show? I do, yeah. Yeah, Sylvia Brown. Yeah. The, the psychic he used to have on there all the time. She yeah. used to rave about her granddaughter and about, and, you know, her daughter as well, but her granddaughter especially, and stated that her granddaughter could do this, could manipulate objects and stuff like that. Although I always used to think to myself, if that were the case, I mean, it, she would be all over. Like, it would be in the news. It would be, you know, in the press all over the place. And we would have heard something about it. And I don't ever recall hearing anything about her granddaughter's abilities. Well, and I, I think, you know, Ryan would even say that finding somebody who could do telekinesis where they're moving stationary objects, I mean, they've not really found any evidence of that. Yeah. But this micro PK where people are influencing, you know, electronic devices Maybe that's something that there's there's more to that, um, especially with this one particular individual. Now, you know, Ryan, I'm sure, has studied lots and lots of people over the years. Right. And if there's only one person that they've found so far that can do this, that would suggest that it's either in, incredibly rare or there's something else going on. Right. So, you know, if we consider all the years that they've been conducting experiments on PK, not just at Rhine, but at other universities and even in other countries, the results have been consistently disappointing. When they did find effects, they weren't significant. And if they were statistically significant, the results couldn't be replicated. So to date, other than the blurb on Rhine Research Center's website, there are no other research studies that have conclusively demonstrated people have PK or telekinetic abilities. In fact, there has been an experiment going on since 1998 called the Global Consciousness Project, or GCP, which was started in the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab at Princeton University. So there you go. There's one university who's still kind of looking at this stuff. Oh, wow. Okay. 
So uh, the GCP is a global experiment where they've placed random number generators at 70 locations worldwide. The hypothesis is that when global events occur that impact the emotions of large groups of people, this collective emotional experience will, will influence the number generators so that their output is no longer random during these times. So the 9-11 terrorist attacks were of particular interest to the researchers, and they claimed there were significant effects on the random number generators, both during the attacks themselves and for two days following them. Right. However, when independent researchers May and Spottiswood conducted their own analysis, they stated there was no statistically significant change. And while the GCP has suggested there have been numerous events that have significantly impacted the generators, their methods have been criticized, with critics stating that they've picked out changes in the random number generators and then attempted to find events to explain these changes. Now, it may seem like that's not really a big deal, and it wouldn't be if they were only looking at correlations. But the GCP's theory is that strong collective emotions or focused attention are causing these changes. As a result, critics state that they should only look at the data from timeframes of significant events. They argue that if it's done this way, they will find that many events don't correlate to changes, thereby disproving the theory. So, David, I have to be honest, this is all pretty disappointing to me. I mean, yeah, yeah, like how cool would it be if we could just get a group of people together, pick lottery numbers, and then focus all of our intention towards making the lottery machine choose those numbers? Yeah, that'd be pretty awesome. Yeah, but, you know, alas, it doesn't work that way. And so, you know, how do we explain what happened in the Philip experiment? Right. I don't really have an answer for that, except that perhaps it can be explained by something called the Ouija condition. Okay. So I think probably everybody knows what a Ouija board is. It's that board and it has the the letters and numbers on it, yes and no. And then you use this little indicator called a planchette. Everybody puts their fingers on it. And supposedly spirits can talk through the board, right? Right. So there was some research conducted by Anderson et al. in 2018 where they wanted to see if they could explain how Ouija boards worked. So what they found was that participant pairs basically unconsciously constructed the Ouija board responses. So in other words, they were not consciously moving the planchette, but they were collectively moving it in a physical, unconscious manner nonetheless. Uh. So, you know, I wonder if the same kind of thing was going on with the Philip experiment. Maybe the participants were physically, not telekinetically, but physically doing things to cause the wrapping and table movements, even though they were not consciously aware of it. Or, of course, there's always the possibility that it was similar to the PK tricks that many illusionists use, and what happened in the Philip experiment were just staged tricks. Yeah. You know, we'll have a link to the recordings on our website so you guys can watch them and decide for yourselves. But as much as I want to believe in psychokinesis, I just don't think it's real. So, you know, Jonathan Frakes from Star Trek, The Next Generation. He yeah. Played, yeah. He, remember that show he used to do where he would explain magic tricks and stuff like that? Yeah. How they yeah. were done? I vaguely remember that. Yeah. He did one on seances. That was actually pretty good. He went through all the little tricks that people who wanted to fake uh, psychical phenomena in a seance and how they would manipulate objects and stuff because the the room is so dark you can't always you can't really see what is happening 
there are some things that they would um, have like glow in the dark tape. Mm-hmm. Like they would have like a rattle or something like that. And they would have tape around it. So you could see the rattle and you could see it moving, but you couldn't see if anything was actually moving it. And what had happened was the person who was conducting the seance, who was, you know, strapped to the chair, mm-hmm. could actually take their foot out of their shoe because the shoe was built this way, slide their foot out of their shoe, move their foot, touch the rattle, and use their foot to rattle the rattle. But you couldn't actually see that because the room was so dark. And that's a good point because, like, these things always happen in, like, darkened rooms or, like, the person, the the medium will be like in a closet where nobody can see them. Right. So, you know, it always kind of lends itself to this idea that there could be some illusion going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and there was a number of tricks. So, you know, we watched the, the show about life after death on Netflix, which was a great series, by the way. Yeah, it's called Surviving Death. Surviving Death. That's yeah. what it's called, right? Um, and it's what, six episodes? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And they do at least a, a full episode on seances at the research center that is in Europe. And they do seances there the way, the old school way, like, like with the person who's actually strapped to a chair is in a sort of like this, in, is encased in sort of this closet looking thing. And it's dark and people are sitting around in a circle. And in that show that Jonathan Frakes hosted, they showed how they get out of the chair. Like the chair is specifically built so you can pull the leg of it or the arm of it up. And then their arm can escape from it, even though it's supposed to be strapped to the arm of this chair. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, it was actually pretty clever. Uh, and it's it's definitely something worth watching. I don't know. Maybe we could get the hold of an old episode of that that show that Jonathan Frakes used to, used to uh, host. Yeah, if we can find a link to it, we'll definitely put it on our website. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, for this topic, you wanted to look at the possibility of psychokinesis or the ability for someone to manipulate the physical world with nothing but the power of their mind. In other words, the basic idea is that in this experiment, that perhaps these people participating in the Philip experiment were able to will all of these physical phenomena that people witnessed during the seances, correct? Right. Yeah, that was that was kind of the, the piece I wanted to look at. Okay. So in other words, if indeed these people were not, in fact, channeling a ghost of some sort, that what did occur in the form of the entity, which is what we'll call it for now, including the physical stuff that was witnessed at the time, that this was somehow caused by the psychic energy of the people conducting the experiment itself. Yeah, I think that that was one of the questions or or one of the the possible explanations. Okay, so I'm glad you brought up the idea of people doing things unconsciously, Jessica, as this is what I wanted to dive more deeply into. So let's look at the idea of unconscious causes caused by people. We as people do unconscious things all the time. So have you ever lost something like your keys or your phone, Jessica? Only like once a week. Yeah, only like once a week, you know, only like every day for me. Right. You know, well, okay, okay, this is simply means that at the time, most likely when you set it down, you did so unconsciously, your attention was most likely not focused on what you were doing. Or maybe you just forgot about it later. But let's say for the sake of argument that you weren't conscious of what you were doing at the time. A lot of people, when they are stressed or otherwise preoccupied, do this. They do something unconsciously and then find this out later when they can't find their keys or their phone or whatever. I do this all the time as well. So the whole mindfulness movement in psychology is one way that we are trying to get people to become more aware of what their unconscious habits may be 
by being mindful in the moment, any moment, of what they're doing and feeling. This is kind of like the line from Empire Strikes Back when Yoda is chastising Luke Skywalker for daydreaming about adventure and excitement. Never his mind on where he was. Hmm? What he was doing. And he pokes him with the cane. <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> that okay. was great, David. <laughs> Thanks. Sometimes I do impressions. So years ago, a Denver cop friend of mine told me a story about when DPD had switched their service weapons to 44 caliber revolvers. This was like in the 70s and 80s. Anyway, he told me that when they did this, they noticed that shooting scores from police officers went down significantly, but they didn't know why. So after some time studying the matter, they noticed that officers who were at the range firing their weapon were flinching slightly in anticipation of the recoil of the gun. For those of you who don't know this, a 44 caliber revolver is a very powerful and heavy gun. It has a significant kick to it, otherwise known as the recoil, when it's fired. Well, cops are generally aware of how their body reacts to the firing of a gun, but many of those who weren't used to firing such a powerful handgun were flinching unconsciously right before pulling the trigger. At the range, Jessica, you and I have been corrected for, quote, jerking the trigger, so to speak, which is when you're not fully aware of how you are pulling the trigger, which can pull the gun downward, resulting in a lower shot than intended. Yeah, that's definitely happened to me. Yeah, me too. And it, it has to do with also knowing the weapon because different trigger pulls feel differently. So with the, the weapons that we use and that we shoot with, it has to be a smooth, even trigger pull, which is very different from using a rifle like the AR that we do use, the M16, which is a much different feeling on the trigger. And that affects how we pull the trigger, which of course affects the accuracy of the shot. So this is one example of how our unconscious mind can step in and cause something strange to happen in our life without us realizing it. Another form of this, and I use this example with the inmates I work with to describe patterns in relationships, is how we all, generally speaking, have that one friend who keeps getting into relationships with someone they know is bad for them. Oh, goodness. Yes. Everybody has that friend. Everybody has that friend. Yes. (laughs) At least one. Right. Then the relationship ends badly, and before too long, they're in another relationship, and the cycle continues. If you don't have this kind of friend in your life, then you're probably the one I'm talking about. (laughs) Uh, Just kidding. Ouch. Everyone has done this at some point. Well, that's because we tend to feel our way through relationships rather than think through them. Emotion is generally the domain of the unconscious mind. That's why we can sometimes feel emotions in our body without knowing where those emotions are coming from. Anyway, we tend to fall for the same types of people over and over again because we are not fully conscious of what is drawing us to this person. As long as we are unconscious, we'll just go with our emotions and we'll fall into the relationship. What tends to happen is that we can go on like this until someone who knows us and is looking at the situation more objectively pulls us aside and points out that this person we're dating is just another version of the same, let's say, emotionally unavailable person as the last person we dated, or whatever. My point is that often in relationships, we are unconscious of why we are attracted to a certain type over and over again. If this type is not compatible with us, then we'll have our hearts broken again and again. So this is the power of unconscious motivations in our lives. I work with this concept a great deal in substance abuse treatment because so much of what I do is help men uncover their unconscious motivations and the damaging patterns in their lives. 
It may seem elementary to some, but you would be floored by how many people I work with that have never connected their substance abuse in adulthood to, say, neglect during their childhood, or whatever the issue may have been. They simply are not fully conscious of the emotional pain that they are carrying around 20, 30, or even 40 years later, and how it continues to affect them in the present. So as we know from our episode on Fire Festival, people will believe something because they want to believe it. Despite evidence to the contrary, people still boarded planes thinking that Fire Festival was going to be two awesome weekends, not a disaster. So when we really want something, like a relationship to work out, we will willfully ignore evidence that tells us it won't. Okay, simple enough, right? What makes this a problem for people is, again, the idea that it's a very unconscious process at work, one that we are not aware of when it's happening. There are many stories of people committing crimes that, after the fact, they can't explain why they did what they did. They simply have no answer for it. This is especially true, as Dr. Louis stated in a past episode, for teenagers who don't have a fully developed frontal lobe in their brain. At this point in their lives, the unconscious mind is simply much more powerful and rules through emotional means as the more rational frontal cortex continues to develop. Okay, so what does this have to do with Philip or psychokinesis? Again, this seems to be an explanation. That these people wanted to make Philip a real entity so badly that they, unconsciously of course, made things happen to make it appear that a ghost of some sort was really in the room with them. Again, we often do things in our lives without realizing it and afterward really can't explain why. Sometimes there is something in the unconscious that pushes toward making a decision for some reason. Only later do we find out that that single decision saved our life. This happens all the time. You hear stories of this all the time. Jung argued that the unconscious mind is like the bottom part of an iceberg, with the conscious mind, as we experience it, only the very tip of the iceberg. Because of this, our work in this life is to continually strive to make what is unconscious in our lives conscious, and thereby bringing light to the darkness, so to speak. One of the ways that the unconscious mind can speak to us is, as we've discussed before, through our dreams and the symbols embedded in our dreams. It makes sense to me that our unconscious uses symbols more so than language, as language is more of a rational construct, whereas dream symbols are pre-conscious by nature and meant more to invoke an emotional response. Have you ever had someone who has passed come to you in a dream? Yeah, I have. Okay, I have too. I really liked the idea in the movie The Sixth Sense, where someone who has passed can communicate with you in a dream because the conscious mind, which is, let's face it, never stops chattering in the day-to-day, is finally quiet, allowing the unconscious mind to receive information from the spirit world or the universe or whatever. Obviously, I didn't come up with this idea, nor can I tell you who did exactly, But to me, it makes sense that this is the case. A more subtle part of the mind is allowed to come forth when we sleep if we're paying attention to it and perhaps have some help interpreting what these messages are. So another example of this is when people read tarot cards. Some may argue that this is some kind of oracle that is moving the cards into places in order to give the reader information. But one interpretation that you and I read, Jessica, regarding this is simply how our own unconscious mind directs the placement of the cards as a way of trying to give us information about ourselves that the conscious mind cannot. In other words, we're deliberately, although unconsciously, directing the placement of the cards. 
This idea is even more intriguing when you consider that typically when we shuffle the cards, they are believed to be randomly placed. But the whole idea of letting the person having the reading do the shuffling is to let their energy, that is, their unconscious mind's will, so to speak, direct the cards to reveal useful information to the person having the reading. So in this sense, we could argue that this is a form of psychokinesis at work. That is very interesting. I had not considered that. Mm, I'm not there yet. All right. <laughs> okay. So how about when someone you know who is going through a rough time asks you to pray for them? With the belief, of course, that your prayer or good vibes or thoughts or whatever will somehow effectuate a better outcome for them. Funny how most of us buy into this idea that our action of prayer or positive thoughts will help someone next door or on the other side of the world. But something tells us that it does. How about when we think about something and we become so into the thought of, say, dancing, that we unconsciously move our body as if we're actually dancing? Just the thought caused a very real reaction in our body. In other words, an internal experience in our mind created a very real correlate in the physical world. A single thought triggered a whole series of firing neurons and biomechanical processes that led to the movement of our body. This is actually a very interesting process as no one really understands how it happens. How can something like a thought, an internal experience, suddenly trigger a very observable phenomena outside of our minds. That's cray-cray. It is. Yeah. And yet somehow these correlates of the inner and outer are seamlessly integrated and we accept it as a part of our everyday lives. And I think that's a really good point because, you know, I think a lot of people are probably pretty skeptical of some of the the things that we've talked about as far as, you know, psychokinesis or tarot cards or Ouija boards or whatever. But I would guess that a lot more people believe in the power of prayer. And I, you know, I'd have to look at the research on that. But I'm wondering, you know, I, people have done it for, right, thousands of years. Absolutely. And so there must be something to it. Absolutely. So, yeah, I, yeah, I like that example. Yeah. So in this sense, I would agree with your Ouija board example that people were unconsciously moving the planchette. But this is what is so interesting. If, let's say, the whole sixth sense thing is possible, that is, the spirit world can communicate with us when we sleep, because it is during this time that when the unconscious mind can be accessed as the conscious mind has finally fallen asleep, then it might be possible that this is exactly what is happening when we unconsciously move a Ouija planchette. That is, the spirit world is communicating with us through our unconscious mind, which is more sensitive to this type of communication. The movement of my hand on the planchette is then the physical manifestation of this communication from the spirit world, all without me being consciously aware of the process. This, of course, assumes that spirits and ghosts are moving through us by directing our unconscious minds and, by extension, our bodies to do things like spell out words on a Ouija board. In other words, I'm moving the planchette, but unconsciously, that is, not aware of the fact that I'm moving it. Hmm. I don't know about this, Dr. Morelos. <laughs> All right. So for the Philip experiment, my hypothesis would be that there could have been a supernatural presence that was present when they were conducting the seance. This being then communicated through the unconscious minds of the participants, then acted out in such a way as a way to make it seem that the things moving around the room were being moved. 
while this would not be telekinesis in the strict definition that is generally accepted, it would be a way for ghosts or other supernatural entities to manipulate the physical world. Or we could say, Jessica, that I just happen to know that you do believe in psychokinesis. I for- do? <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh, I hear a story coming. All right. For our listeners out there, there is a closet in Jessica's parents' house that routinely opens itself. Every time we go to visit, the sliding mirrored door on this closet is open and no one knows how it happens. The funny thing is that the closet is located in the guest room, which is used for storage and not a closet that anyone uses in the day-to-day, and yet it opens itself. I think I'll set up a camera next time we go to visit your parents just to see if it captures the door moving. What do you think? Of course you would have to come up with an example that I can't explain. (laughs) But that does happen. It's true. I don't know. I don't know what's causing it, but you know, it Uh, it does happen. Every time we're taking our bags into that particular room when we're visiting your parents, that door is wide open. This is a good point. Nobody knows how it (laughs) how it opened. So we have never really been able to verify telekinesis in the sense that you're referring to it. That is, I can crush an egg or whatever from the other side of the room just by thinking about it or move a chair with no physical contact and then can replicate this act over and over again. I do believe that we create very significant changes in the physical world simply through the power of our minds. Like I have brought up in the past, the way we do this through our bodies is simply amazing as no one can fully explain how it happens. That is, where exactly a thought that is personal and internal to us suddenly becomes a measurable action in the physical world. This question, of course, is part of the riddle of consciousness, which is what first attracted me to the study of the transpersonal to begin with, and probably the critique of our myopic and materialist view of existence. But that's just some thoughts. So, David, what is it called? What's the term not when you physically move something, but where you can like implant a thought? Or like communicate without speaking? Telepathy, right? Yes. Okay. So just for our listeners, a funny story. So I don't believe (laughs) that I have psychokinetic abilities, but I may have telepathy. So the other day we were getting ready for bed. David was downstairs. I was upstairs and we have a hot tub. And I thought in my mind, I did not say it out loud, but I was thinking, huh, I wonder, did David shock the hot tub? And at that very moment, he responded and said, yes, I shocked the hot tub. <laughs> and it was the the most bizarre experience because we had the same thought at the same time. Well, it was kind of like that. So, yeah. And so for the listeners out there, shocking the hot tub just means to add chlorine to it. Right. Yeah. And so, and we have a hot tub where we live. And so I was coming in from the backyard and I thought that in my head and I answered her question just as if she had asked it to me out loud, which was what really made that really weird. So she asked the question in her head and I answered it in my head. And then she asked it aloud and I said to her, that was really strange. And she asked me, well, what was strange? I said, you know, what's funny? I just answered that question in my head as if you asked it out loud. Very spooky stuff. But you know what? I I think like, you know, it's not telepathy. I think we just spend a lot of time together. And so you being in the backyard, I think, triggered both of us to think of the hot tub. But it was just kind of a funny thing. It is kind of a funny thing. Well, the the fact of the matter is that that happens quite often to us. That's not just, I mean, that's just one example. 
and it wasn't necessarily the fact that we were both on the same wavelength because we were on the same wavelength and that happens to people all the time but the fact of the matter was you had asked it as a question so you asked it in a particular way as if you were saying it yes in your head yes and i answered it in a particular way as if i were responding to you when neither one of us had actually said anything and it was at the exact same moment it was at the exact same moment (laughs) you had just asked that question in your head and i had just answered it in my head without us ever vocalizing anything i could have just said oh i you know i could have just thought of shocking the hot tub right But, but that wasn't what made that particular situation so interesting it was how we did it it was as if we were having a conversation in our heads with each other so now that our listeners all think that we've completely <laughs> lost our minds, uh, I think we're going to wrap this one up. Uh, but if you want to check out some of the information we referenced in this episode, you can find those links on the discussion page of our website at psychologyafterdark.com. And David, we only have one episode left of season three. I know. Oh my gosh, it went by so fast. Yeah. But we are in the process of developing our episode list for season four. So if you have a suggestion, please reach out to us on social media or on our website. We've gotten some really great suggestions so far, so please keep them coming. And if you want a little sneak peek of what we're going to be talking about on our season finale, be sure to follow us on Facebook or and on Instagram at Psychology After Dark. And thank you to everyone who has reached out to us, told your friends about us, left us reviews, or given us a rating. We can't tell you how much we appreciate it. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with our season three finale. Time to take a little bit of a break, but thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Gemendo. 